pockets came down like a heavy rain when your face is caked with tears. No one can see it, but you know what's really going on. Big Head was big blind, and Ryan was small. Gonzo was to the left with the shortest stack, looking casual in polarized Oakleys. Jay was shuffling his chips like a deck trying to shuffle the tits off the queen. I tried to remain steely, but I could feel my eyes resisting the urge to scan around the table. I pulled back my cards and spied an unsuited big slick, the ace of diamonds and the suicide king looking back at me. Gonzo didn't flinch when he checked his pocket, stone-faced bastard. Jay folded in disgust and mumbled something about a hand that looked like an orphanage fire. Big Head didn't even look at his cards and tossed a couple of red chips into the pot. Ryan's mouth subtly twitched as a sigh escaped him. He was tap dancing on a high wire and it seemed that the next round of bets was going to tell all of us if that wire was going to have thousands of volts shot through it. Ryan's hand slowly put in two more reds, begrudgingly like someone was holding a gun to it. I checked, like the smartest man in the room. The dealer panned the table, eyes sharp with attention, but with a smoldering apathy behind that. She didn't care who won and who lost. The same look a military leader would have on the front lines of a battle. Life and death be damned if it didn't affect them personally. She burned and turned before spreading out the flop. Three of hearts, ten of hearts, and the queen of diamonds. My heartbeat leapt from calm to struggling against a straitjacket. A shiny sheet of sweat broke out on Ryan's forehead. It seemed he had tripped off the wire, racked himself, and the several car batteries worth of juice were going straight to his balls. I tossed in two reds and a blue, feeding the pot like so much chum in a shark tank. A shark tank full of sharks with bloodlust and chainsaws for fins. Big Head cleared his throat and finally looked at his cards. The fucker seemed to be using the force, and that made everyone itchy. A grin split his face, and he raised the pot by another two blues. Without saying anything, Ryan folded. No one said anything, but the chuckles that spread across the table spoke volumes about the pot being too intimidating a bleak abyss for Ryan to stare into and remain solvent and sane. Gonzo adjusted his sunglasses, pulled a hit from his vape, and called the bet. I checked, suddenly not liking my odds. The dealer burns another card from the top of the deck face down and places another one face up. The turn gave me a glimmer of hope, but in inches, not miles. It was the four of clubs. Big Head's unwavering faith in the unknown guiding his luck looked like it diminished as his cocky smile eroded slightly to a half-hearted smirk and raised eyebrows. He tossed in the new minimum, two more blues, and readjusted himself in his chair. I don't know what he had, but if he wasn't feeling the pins and needles now, he would be soon. Gonzo tilted his head up and looked over at Big Head, from behind his mirrored lenses. Big Head's smile regained his sparkling quality while filling my heart with loathing. Gonzo's fingers trembled in the air above the green felt. He was debating checking, and we could all tell. His hand was moving like a belly dancer with Parkinson's when he finally decided. Calling his decision to raise bravely stupid was a compliment to stupid and an insult to bravery. He went all in. He slid his chip pile into the center of the table, then leaned back in his chair. The chair creaked menacingly, like it held a Bond villain who had the spy in a truly inescapable death trap and readily prepared to launch his doomsday weapon. The self-assured fucker had put both Big Head and I in a position to put up or shut up. 
Ryan and Jay looked at the table, and then to each other, and then around the table, again. The dealer managed to side-glance at her watch. Her shift must be up soon, or she was ready for a cigarette break. I counted my chips out, and cut a squinty glare at Big Head. He caught me, and his smile got that much toothier. Shit. Fine. I'd bought the ticket, so I might as well take the ride. It was either going to be Disneyland teacups, or a Gemini Titan rocket to hell. I placed two-thirds of my money into cold call Gonzo. With that, Gonzo sat up in his seat like he was suddenly realizing a hungry T-Rex was behind him. Big Head checked, wrapping his knuckles on the table unceremoniously. The three of us flipped our pockets face up, surrounding the hefty pot. Gonzo had two pairs, tens and threes. Big Head had pocket sixes and didn't seem enthused to show them. He had been floating his bets when there were wolves in the hen house. If those chickens were capable of flight, they would be coming home to roost. No matter how he cut it, he thought he was doomed. I flashed my slick. Gonzo and Big Head laughed. I was an atheist quarterback looking for a Hail Mary with two seconds on the clock. This was a showdown, and I had brought a water pistol to a Patriot missile fight, and the betting could still go on. The clock ticked languidly and marked every goddamn moment Big Head took to think to calculate his odds. Gonzo took another hit on the vape, exhaling a thick plume of dope-tinged smoke. The man was sitting on two pair and hungrily looking to put down the two upstart would-be wolf pack leaders, one with a grim likelihood at a losing three of a kind, the other with an even grimmer shot at pulling a winning straight. Big Head let out a haunting rendition of Omar's whistle from the wire and called my bet. Gonzo readjusted his glasses from where they had partially slid down his nose as a result of his own sweat betraying his coolness. I checked. There was nothing else I could do if I wanted to get out of this wood chipper of a hand with any skin left on me. Gonzo leaned back again, crossing his arms on his chest. Big Head just stared through the dealer, trying to remain casual. His bluff was going to cost him a good-sized chunk of moolah and his faith in whatever celestial being had deserted him. Big Head knew... If he made it to the next hand, he would be barely skinning by the rest of the table on chips, and Gonzo had played him and I off each other. I was trying not to burn a hole through my exposed cards, a possible bobbed wire handled bucket of shit if I didn't catch up and on the inside. The dealer burning and turning the river felt like it was a slow-motion David Lynch movie. Everything was jagged, out of focus, jittery, and strobing. It took relative eons for her to greet the felt with the card. All that ran through my mind was Star Wars. If I was Han Solo, I would have asked to never tell me the odds, and then some homosexual gold-plated asshole would tell me I have a less than 10% chance to pull a jack. One in ten. Three times the chances of getting laid before the night's over in a relationship, and about the same chance an email is pornography. She set down the river, like a flower on the grave, big head groans, and Gonzo just stared at it like he'd caught it fucking his sister on prom night. Whatever flying spaghetti monster or disembodied sentient gas cloud that runs the cosmos that Big Head was praying to must hate attention mongers and love to see if it can convert a non-believer. Looking up from a fuzzy sea of dull lime green is the Jack of Spades. My inside straight. Gonzo gets up to get another beer and I give him a nod that asks if he'll come back with one for me. The blind counter gets swept over to Ryan as I nonchalantly sweep the chips off the table and organize them in stacks. Jay checks his phone, and the dealer stretches and tells us she'll be right back. I follow her, knowing we're both going to return to the table reeking of camel filters.
That was Poker Face. I'm Doug, and this is Mr. Wright. This piece has been a long time coming. It took me about a week to really sit down and research it and get it all how I liked it. It included some graphic design in that I actually pulled a picture of a poker table and labeled what everyone had, where everyone was sitting, where the dealer was. I got on a website that showed me what the odds were, where I could pull cards down into each player's hands and look at the odds so I can actually accurately talk about that kind of stuff, um, that kind of thing. When the time came, I researched, you know, terminology, very deep jargon. I knew enough. I do play Texas Hold'em with uh, friends. They're all mentioned in this episode. And this piece really is the first piece written for Mr. Wright outside of Black Falls seasons two through what will be four, um, though those were written for Black Falls, so I don't consider them exclusive to Mr. Wright. So Poker Face is the first exclusive piece I've ever written for this podcast. Poker Face was written to show how to build tension or suspense, thus the name of the episode, The Precipice, the top of a crater, the craggy peak of a mountain before you drop off or go back down, hopefully on foot and not falling. If you notice throughout the whole piece, every time a next card is going to be turned and burned or flipped over in terms of seeing what's going to be in the next hand, I break into describing what the people are doing, what the dealer's thinking, things that are going on around, thought processes, all of that. I start breaking up how the cards fall so that you're always on the edge of your seat wondering what the next card is going to be. Once again, foreshadowing didn't really use a whole lot. I do rec you know, I did write all I needed was, you know, an inside straight. I needed to come up and on the inside. So you know what I need, but I'm not saying I'm going to get it. This is not one of those pieces that starts off with the Temple of Doom is a place where no man has escaped before. But now meet Jim Jones. You know, and you know that Jim Jones is going to be the one man that escapes the Temple of Doom. This was anyone's could win. Um, I built that into the pockets, which were the hands, uh, the cards that are dealt to each player face down. So when you finally realize that Gonzo's been dealt um, two pairs on the flop and that Big Head is dealt a pocket pair, which are the two sixes, you know that it could be anyone's game, especially when I start talking odds. These are ways you can build tension. I once again added space in between each inciting incident. If you, if you think about it as, as a mountain of peaks and troughs, I kept building up and up and up until the next card. Slide down, and then up and up and up until the next card. Now you can do that in action very easily. If you're writing a fight scene, you have your character on the ropes. I mean, evenly matched, then on the ropes, then maybe slightly down, and then coming back up, and then slightly down. Think of it as a sine wave going up and down. You can use that to your advantage to build tension. You can also use distraction, like I used in Poker Face. What is your character thinking before he throws the next punch? Yes, your audience is waiting for that next punch. They're waiting to see if he'll win. Break that up. Write some stuff in the middle that keeps them riveted, keeps them in the moment, but has them reading towards that first punch or an inciting incident. Tension can also start right away. I could have started this 
with just the last card of the deal happening and did an entire two-page piece about waiting for that last card. So already you're at the top of the mountain. You're going, what's the last card? What's going on? I start with everyone's sweating. These are the odds. Am I going to make it or am I going to lose? And what are the stakes if I lose? Am I out of the game? Who knows? Those are the kind of things you can start off to start with tension if you don't want to build to it. Also, I mean, look at any book you've ever read where you are gripped. Now, whether the writer does, does an inciting incident, inciting incident, inciting incident, and keeps building you, building you, building you, and then drops off suddenly, a la Neil Stevenson, or it's a slow burn, and I know I keep bringing him up, like Richard Cadry in the Sandman Slim series. Also by Richard Cadry, he does the uh, Coop Heist series, and those, very slow burn, very incremental plateaus in terms of building up to a big heist. How does he do that? Smaller heists, or planning for the big heist. So you're always on the edge, waiting for the heist to happen, but he's dragging it out with all the planning, what could go wrong, then you get to the heist. Ooh, tension relieved. But... As you know, in any heist book, any heist movie, something's going to go wrong. And you're waiting for that. That creates tension as well and suspense. How do they surmount what goes wrong? Does anything even go wrong? It could be the smoothest thing and then the tension happens on them trying to fence the stolen property. Or did they even get the right property? Were they tricked? Is there another group? What happened to the original MacGuffin? Look at David Lynch and Mark Frost's new season of Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks The Return. Everyone is talking about how slow of a burn that is. In fact, you don't see a lot of the pieces even come together till the last two or three episodes. And the season's not even done yet. Everything's just coming together now. It's literally been more than two-thirds of a season of 18, you know, 10 episodes of nothing's really going on. There's a lot of setup to whatever the return is. And that's something where, if you do it well, that slowest burn to where the finale is a real punch in the face, there's another exact reason you can start tension is have literally nothing going on. And everyone knows something's going to happen, something's going to happen, and they're waiting for it, and waiting for it, and waiting for it, and holding their breath. So sometimes instead of starting with high tension, start with no tension, and keep going, no tension, no tension, no tension, boom! That's then the end. Those are excellent ways to create tension. If you'd like to suggest your own, I'm more than glad to talk about those on the upcoming listener question episode, which is called Epilogue, even though it will not be an epilogue to this podcast, it's just a clever way of saying it's, you know, the end of getting the questions. So let me know on at BACN Media on Twitter or Facebook at BACN Podcast or email us at info at BACNpodcast.com with any of your suggestions for how to create tension or any other questions you have that you want me to answer on this podcast in probably the next couple weeks. So remember, if you keep writing, they'll keep reading. Right on. If you liked this, check out some of our other shows like Mr. Right, Exotic Liability, and No Applause, Just the Clap. 
You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, yeah.